Hello and welcome to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On today's show, are you in a pilot scheme? Boris Johnson was, Rishi Sunak was for about five minutes, and now apparently the whole country is for an indefinite period as the government scraps all COVID restrictions. Friend of the pod, Roy Lilly is here to explain what's in store for the NHS and those in its care. Plus, we look at the protests in Cuba. Could one of the world's last remaining communist states really be teetering? And this week's free speech story. No, it's not GB News cancelling itself. It's the government's creation of a free speech enforcer with powers to find universities. Solutions to a problem that doesn't exist, reasonable idea, or worst superhero ever. We'll find out about that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker. Let's meet the panel. Gavin Essler is the optimistic author of How Britain Ends, a former BBC journalist and currently Chancellor at the University of Kent. Hello, Gavin. Hello. How are you? Not bad. So, before we get to COVID, lots of fun in Labour this week. It seems that Keir Starmer is going to push the button and ask the NEC to prescribe four groups on the left, shall we say, Resist, Labour Against the Witch Hunt, Socialist Appeal, and Labour in Exile Network, the clues in the name, expel them all from the party. These are all power bases of continuity Corbynism. Is he wise to do this, do you think? Is it a good look? Well, I don't think he's got any alternative. You know, I mean, the secret weapon of the Conservative Party in our country has always been loyalty. And uh, if you're loyal, you can be advanced. That's why we had Chris Grayling and others. Uh, it has a downside, I should say. The secret weapon in the uh, Labour Party is the, well, it's not really a, a weapon and it's not a secret. Uh, some of them hate each other. And one of the problems, going right back to Militant, I remember discussing it with, with Neil Kinnock when he was Labour leader and some of his MPs, is you get people in the party who don't actually want to win. They want to uh, cause trouble within the party because you're not left enough. I'm lefter than you. And so what happens is, as, as uh, one MP told me recently, actually, uh, they keep the meetings going till after 10 o'clock at night, so at midnight. And when everybody else has got a job or a family or on a life goes home, certain decisions are taken and it causes trouble. And that was a, that was a, an MP more recently. And that is an echo of what Militant did. And it's one of the reasons why Kinnock kicked them out. So I think the upside for, for Keir Starmer is he might look decisive. The downside is this is the Labour Party looking at its own navel again. And that's going to be a problem. He's got to get through it. But I think he has got to, probably he's got to do it. And it's going to set up for um, quite a combative conference season. But I just wonder whether that's actually, if, you, if you're going to have your fight, have it in public in front of the people you want to vote for you. Have it, yeah. have it in front of the people who want to, who, who would quite like to see you going against the Labour Party that they rejected. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that the problem with, with uh, Labour at the polls isn't Keir Starmer, it's the Labour Party itself. And this is part of it. And if he, one time in the year when at least journalists pay quite a bit of attention to, to the Labour Party, given that everything else has been covered with COVID, is when they have their conference. And if there's a big fight, we all, I mean, those of us who covered politics for a long time, remember Neil Kinnock saying how disgraceful it was that Liverpool... Uh, the Labour Party sent round redundancy to notices. Scuttling around, scuttling, scuttling around, around their city in cabs, handing out redundancy notices. Exactly. It's etched on my mind. And so I, if, if, if I were in the Labour Party and advising Keir Starmer, I'd think of what is your best line that you want to get on the 10 o'clock news out of this debacle? Because it will, it will be a big row. There's no question about it. Also joining us, we have Yasmin Sahan, staff writer at The Atlantic, now resident in London. Hello, Yasmin. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm enjoying this very Californian weather. 
Yeah, it's weirding me out. I don't understand. That, that London only, by the way. Other, other weather is available <laughs> elsewhere in the country. So, so Joe Biden got out the big stick with Facebook at the weekend, saying that misinformation on the platform is killing people. He's not. A, he's known to be not a fan of Zuckerberg at all at a personal level. Facebook claims it's taken aggressive action to stop the spread of misinformation on, on its platform. But is, is putting a tag on every COVID post enough, saying, you know, please click this and read the real information? Uh, clearly not, I think, because misinformation continues to spread. And, you know, if you're someone who's inclined to believe that the pandemic is a hoax or that, you know, vaccines are untrustworthy, you, you might not necessarily look to Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg as some kind of authority on the matter, I don't think. Um, but, um, but, you know, I, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that Biden didn't mince words when it, when it, came, to, to, when it came to Facebook, though, though I think it's, it's worth noting that this criticism has also been leveled at other platforms, you know, YouTube, Twitter. Um, I mean, recall that until very recently, the American author Naomi Wolf was tweeting some pretty outlandish anti-vax misinformation to her, I think, more than 140,000 followers. I can't double check that because she's since been booted off the um, platform. But, you know, she treated things like saying that uh, that the, the waste of, of vaccinated people um, needs to be separated from the general sewage supplies to make sure that it doesn't impact <laughs> the non-vaccinated people's drinking water or something absurd like that. Um, but, but Facebook has pushed back against Biden's characterization um, in a blog post over the weekend. The company's vice president of integrity, um, I didn't know such a, such a position <laughs> exists, um, they, they laid out all the ways in which Facebook has encouraged its users to get vaccinated um, and you know, basically said that Facebook wasn't the reason behind the White House falling short of its goal of 70, getting 70% of the country vaccinated by the 4th of July. So you know, I, I think... Uh, I'm not one to ever be sympathetic to Facebook, um, but I do think that they're under quite a lot of pressure because on the one hand, they're under attack from the White House, which says it's failing to do enough to monitor its posts. But on the other hand, you have attacks from Republicans who say that they're stifling free speech. I don't know what's making my head spin more. The idea that there's somebody at Facebook with both vice and integrity in their job title or Naomi Wolf's COVID toilet. Both equally astonishing. She's probably got a separate one in the house. Completing the panel, it's former diplomat, once our man in Trinidad and Tobago, now our man in Gloucestershire, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. So what did you make of the Pegasus spyware story that broke this morning in The Guardian? This company called NSO has installed malware on phones and devices around the world, enabling authoritarian regimes to target human rights activists and politicians. All kinds of crazy stuff is happening. Yeah, well, people in in my world, if you know what I mean, have known about Pegasus (laughs) for a while. But I think the big deal is that the identities of some of the targets have now come out. And what you're seeing is it's loads of people who are carrying out entirely creditable and legal activities. And of course, Pegasus, the the parent company NSO, will tell you that it's only ever used against criminals and terrorists. Well, lots of these people are neither criminal nor terrorist. So it is very troubling. The usual response is if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to fear. But amongst the people who've been targeted are the, the editor of the FT, the family of Jamal Khashoggi, the family of a Mexican journalist who was tracked and then subsequently murdered. It is actually sort of genuinely worrying stuff. Yeah. And so what happened is, uh, you know, NSO have created a a cunning software platform that allows the uh, user basically to hack into your phone and they've sold it to governments all over the world. And we might say in a democracy, you know, that MI5 or a government like that would have a use for such a software. I mean, to be clear, the British government is not, to my knowledge, a user of this platform. 
but they've sold it to governments in places like Saudi Arabia, in India, in Mexico, in places where extrajudicial killings happen, in places where there's huge corruption within the security services. So this product is now used to completely invade the privacy of anyone who falls foul of whoever is in control of those particular countries, or more importantly, the security services of those particular countries. Do you yourself use sort of super secure devices? You like on Signal and EncroChat and all the other super secret ones? Uh, well, or, I, or could you not say? Yeah, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of Signal. And for those who are not familiar, it's very like WhatsApp. It's much more secure. But to be very clear, the, the, um, you know, the sinister genius of this software is that it can defeat all of those. Because what it's actually doing is effectively kind of recording. I mean, this is layman's terms, but it's sort of recording what's happening on the screen of your phone. So obviously, you, you can't hack into Signal from the outside. But if someone is in a position to see what you're seeing on your phone, those messages are no longer secure. I think everybody has to accept with a lot of reluctance that there is no such thing as privacy unless you're standing in a deserted place talking to someone else and there's nobody listening. And phones can be switched on and used as a, you know, as a mic, as a bug. You might think you've turned the phone off, but you know that it's possible that it's still recording what's happening in the room. If you're worried about these things, you just have to be paranoid. Or use a Nokia 3310 with nothing on it but snake, because you can't record that screen. There you go. You can have that one for free. Problem solved. Yes, very. that is an extremely good point. A Nokia 3310 or writing a letter uh, <laughs> and sealing it in an envelope. I'll have my man bring it round after tea. Now, you couldn't make it up. Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid all started so-called Freedom Day in self-isolation. After Javid tested positive for COVID on Saturday morning, Johnson and Sunak eventually joined the health secretary in isolation, but not before an embarrassing U-turn when plans to allow them to take daily tests and continue working in Downing Street as part of a, quote, pilot scheme were abandoned following a major public backlash. This all comes against a backdrop of rising COVID numbers with over 50,000 new cases on Saturday, the most since mid-January, and NHS staff reportedly distressed by the prospect of a third wave. Joining us to talk it all through, we're delighted to be joined by NHS commentator and friend of the podcast, Roy Lilly. Hello, Roy. How are you doing? Good afternoon. I'm super good. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad to have you back on the show. So so starting off with the weekend's events surrounding Javid Johnson and Sunak, what, what did you make of all that? Because it was it couldn't have been worse timed, but also it couldn't have been worse handled by the looks of things. No, exactly. It was jaw-dropping, wasn't it? And there was an absolute sort of social media Twitter storm of about 157 minutes where <laughs> the world crashed in on them it was such a stupid thing to do and just you know apart from the optics of it what it looked like it, it was just so stupid because this is a random randomized controlled trial that they're talking about so it's now made it look that you know if you know somebody you can get on the trial well if you can bust in onto a randomized control trial you destroy the whole trial for everybody so it was it was stupid on the pr front it was very stupid on the policy front it was very stupid uh, uh, on the trial front. So the whole thing was just jaw-droppingly daft. And infection numbers now are as high as they were during the peak in mid-January. Deaths are still low, but they're rising. And the seven-day average is now about is over 40 compared to 10 a month ago. It, it, should we have opened up today? 
Well, look, I mean, I really do understand, you know, people are fed up with this. People have got lives they want to get on with. Businesses are going down the tube. People are being furloughed, sacked, lost their jobs. This is a really desperate situation. But there's no point in opening up if we're going to have to close down again. And a lot of people in and around the NHS are saying, you know, talk to me in September and October when we're talking about closing up again. So this is a really difficult time. I suppose if you ask me to judge the mood of the NHS, it's kind of sitting on the edge of its seat. It's holding its mm. breath because it's not really sure what is going to happen next. It's true the numbers are going up, but it's also true that the number of people that are going into ITU, intensive therapy, the numbers are much lower. The people who are being uh, who are who are going into hospital, um, they're going on to medical wards. They're much younger and their length of stay is much shorter. But the NHS is chock a block busy. I mean, all over the uh, all over the place, we've got ambulance services that are saying, "Look, don't ring us because we haven't got any ambulances left." There's a thing that the NHS we used to call it. You and I would probably understand it. A lot of people would understand it as black alerts. It's now called Opal, which is a, mm-hmm. a grading system the NHS use going from one to four, four being the busiest. And and two-thirds of hospitals are on Opal 4 because there's been a huge surge of people going into hospital. Um, and of course, on top of that, we've got the, the COVID people. The difficulty is you've got to divide the hospital into two, the COVID bit and the non-COVID bit. That's very difficult to do with social distancing. If you look at the, the bed numbers, for example, before COVID, the NHS had about 100,000, just over 100,000 beds. Now it's working with about 80,000 beds because of the demands of social distancing and staffing and what have you. So, you know, this is like a really high wire time. I mean, you could almost sense that the sort of deep intake of breath over the weekend, and, you know, you've been writing and, and, and tweeting about this. The figures have been worsening for, for weeks, but the government is adamant it wouldn't be deflected from the date. Is it fair to say that the scientists have effectively been steamrolled, that the date has beaten the data? I, th- I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of gossip around Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. You know, have they rolled over and had their tummies tickled? I, I, I think we've got to the point where we realise that you know the economy is in shreds and we've got to do something about it. The, the next question is, okay, well, what do you do about it? Uh, and and to release everything in one go, I think most people realise that's pretty daft. And and already, I mean, now we're into this pandemic thing, aren't we? Where mm-hmm. 25% of some hospital staff have been sent home because they've been pinged and that's all being unpicked. Just before we came on air, it was announced that uh, some uh, some nursing staff won't have to uh, go home if they've been pinged and they're going to come to work providing they've had sufficient number of lateral flow tests and so on. So the policy is already unravelling. I mean, the government was depending on on the pinging thing, test and trace working and vaccinations. Well, vaccinations amongst the young, certainly in London, are starting to tail off and the pinging thing has just got to unmanageable proportions and they're going to have to row back on that. So, you know, this is very tricky. Roy, the chair of the BMA, Dr Chan Nagpal, called for a U-turn on Freedom Day. Jeremy Hunt warned that restrictions may need to return in the autumn. Are we, well, firstly, we seem to be repeating the same mistake again, but the context is different. It, it, does, the, um, does the NHS have the capacity to weather this or are we going to be back into, into lockdown at some point in the next few months, do you think? 
Well, it's a very good question. I mean, the NHS only had the capacity last time we had this because it sent 30,000 people home from hospital into care homes, and we know what happened there. And it stopped admitting people for elective procedures, including cancers and so on, and we know what's happened there. So there is capacity in the system, but it can't do both. So, you know, it's going to have to start. Already, they put the brakes on on elective procedures. There's something like... 5 million people now waiting for an operation. And it's worth noting that in the course of a normal year, the NHS undertakes about 10 million procedures. 2 million of them operated procedures. 2 million of them are emergencies and have been done one way or the other. That leaves you 8 million. So if you've got 8 and 5, that's 13 million people. You're going to try and crack through the system in a year and next year there'll be another 8 million, another 8 million. I mean, the NHS is going to be super really busy for you know for as long as you can predict. Some people are saying it's going to be five years to work our way through through the backlog. So yes, it can create the headroom, but it means it, it will have to stop doing things in order to do that. What about NHS staff then? Because I think I, I read you a, a couple of days ago describing the NHS as being in a place beyond burnout and fatigue. What, what are you hearing from staff and from hospitals and from, from doctors and nurses? Is, is, is there a side to this that's perhaps not being made as public as it could be? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think the technical expression is that everybody's knackered. But apart from that, of course, I mean, hospitals are used to death and, and they're used to, you know, if that's the stock in trade, you know, we think about people going in hospital, get fixed up, going home with a big happy smile on their face. But there's a lot of tragedy that occurs in a hospital on a daily basis and people do die. Most of us will die in a hospital. Uh, but but to have death on an industrial scale like it was through COVID with a lot of people who weren't used to dealing with death on an industrial scale. I mean, if you were used to nursing perhaps in a surgical ward where you were sending a lot of grannies home with a new hip and a smile on their face, if suddenly you went to work and day after day, the people that you left the night before and came back the next day were gone, they were dead. It, it, it's had a huge impact on staff and a lot of them are still, still shell-shocked by doing it. A lot of them, of course, completely disrupted their their lives. I mean, there were lots of stories that I know about where nurses didn't go home to their husbands and families because uh, they didn't want to take COVID home. So they stayed in hotels or with friends or in rented accommodation and so on. So it was, it's been hugely disruptive. And getting, getting back to normal, I mean, that stays with you. Some people are able to accommodate that. Other people need time to decompress. Some people, it scars them for life. So the, the, the NHS has gone through a very bad place. And the prospect of having to go through that all again. Well, you know, the grand old Duke of York, he marks his troops to the top of the hill and down again. And the question is, can we march the troops to the top of the hill again? Where is that, those reserves of energy? Where is the resilience? And this this is, you know, it's easy to say, oh, it's hospitals, it happens, people die. But it's been a time of huge tragedy and, and people whose lives are committed to saving lives and improving lives have found it very, very difficult. Gavin Ezra, I, w- I want to go back into the politics of, of the weekend, but we mentioned it earlier, the, uh, the, the non-self-isolation business. James O'Brien on LBC described Johnson and Sunak's flip-flop as Barnard Castle times Hancock's steamy clinch times a million. Um, is he exaggerating? Do you think this this will will cut through? Because it did, as as Roy said, it was a lot of fury in in a in less than two hours, which changed the direction of what the government was doing. 
Yes, and there's so many things to be furious about. I mean, on the one hand, as Roy says, the idea that the prime minister can bust into a randomised control trial to suit his own convenience, uh, it's the sort of Bullingdon Club writ large, a privileged, but actually incompetent as well. And But the other thing that really gets me is we're also governed by jellyfish. I mean, two hours of Twitter and he completely reverses himself totally reverses himself. This seems to be some kind of psychological wish to be loved, but you can't be wished to be loved as prime minister all the time. I'd almost, almost have cheered if he'd said, look, I was wrong about the busting into a control trial. I am prime minister. I did have COVID. I know how bad it is. I'm going to take steps to make sure I don't infect anybody else as much as I can, but I've got to get on with the people's work. If he'd even said that, we could have mm. criticised him, but it would have sounded like some degree of leadership rather than waiting to see which way the wind blows and then following it. Labour have been hammering the the theme of one rule for them and another for the rest of us. And don't it, this is a very clear example. They don't really seem to have hammered it in this instance. Wh- why is that? Should they? Is there any profit in it anymore? Uh, I, I, I just I go back to the core problem with this government, which is there is no core beyond trying to look good and trying to do salesmanship. So what we have is government by slogans and headlines, Global Britain, Freedom Day, Leveling Up, Build Back Better, and so on. Every single one of them is like a a, a meringue with a hole in the middle. And once you crack the meringue, you can't put it back together again. And so that is their fundamental problem. And that is, add to that, the fact it does appear that what is important is dealing with cronies and sticking to the people you know, and, uh, and making sure that they do well out of a coronavirus pandemic, which in which many people are doing very badly. And at some point, I would hope, a degree of reality will sink through to people who have supported the government up to now, because we all want a government in this time when we're all in it together, as we really are, to be reasonably competent. And at every stage, they have done the wrong thing. Including, including over the Delta variant. You had your own pandemic experience, haven't you, this week? Me, I have. Yes, I mean, my my one of my daughters. Uh, looking forward to going to school this week. She's been at home with us today because I think it was a supply teacher who popped into the classroom for about half an hour uh, and later tested positive last Wednesday. Nobody else in the class has tested positive, so my daughter's at home. And to say she's not happy about it is, um, you know, is, is quite something. So we, this isn't Freedom Day for her or for, for us, obviously, because we're looking after her. So it does seem that it is one rule for some and another rule for the rest of us. Arthur Snell, your wife's a doctor. She works in the NHS. What, what, what's the kind of mood like in the Snell household at the moment? Is it apprehensive? Uh, I, th- I think it's um, it, it goes a bit past that. I mean, <laughs> one of the things uh, that struck me as pretty awful was the realization from hearing my wife talk to her colleagues that that none of the sort of guidance about how they were going to manage the new world post the misnamed freedom day had had yet emerged so so you've got most of the nhs is sitting waiting and then they'll have to make it up as they go along and and it just seems extraordinary that basically the government got bored and said well we'll, we'll stop doing covid on this day but we're not going to plan for it. You know, we're not going to plan for how we even manage this this stage of the pandemic. It's it's just it's so strange. 
Yeah, I am. You know, mentioned the the pandemic a moment ago, with so many people sort of told to isolate almost out of the blue. There is widespread public distrust that this thing is oversensitive. People are there. You know, there are anecdotal stories about people feeling they've been pinged through a wall or from you know the upstairs flat and that kind of thing. But it is having real consequences. Businesses are having to close uh, because they can't get the staff. Is this something you would have thought that a business centred government would would have this at the front of its calculations? Is there anything that can be done to make this work better? Well, look, there's a couple of things to say about this. Firstly, there's uh, the issue around the sensitivity of the Bluetooth. We all know how it works. Mm. It picks up Bluetooth on people's phone. Now, you can attenuate the Bluetooth. If effectively, you can turn the wick down on the Bluetooth. Uh, the extent that you can turn it down. <laughs> is that know, how it I, works? Is it like the gas? Yeah, listen, it might be too technical. Ask <laughs> yeah. oh, somebody more turning the wick down. But you can turn the wick down so you can attenuate its sensitivity. You can do that. And the question then is, well, why wouldn't you do that? Now, as we've seen today, the government are going to ignore the fact that, that, that people have been pinged as far as the NHS is concerned. And if they can come up with some sort of wacky business case thing, they're going to just test the nurses and they're going to come back to work. The next thing then is going to be, well, what about the police force? What about the lorry drivers? What about the bus drivers? Why can't they all do that? And you're going to see this whole ping thing unraveling because everybody can make a very good case why they should be treated like nurses and doctors. And here's the other, here's the bit that no one seems to be talking about. The big problem, the, one of the reasons why they closed the door from France is the South African variant. Now, there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine last week, which, which is said that, you know, paraphrasing, two jabs of AstraZeneca only provided a 10.4% uh, protection uh, against infection uh, with the South African variant. Now, that's why we don't want the South African variant here. That's why I think the government is dancing around its handbag, deciding what it is going to try and do. Because if we see that coming in here and it's, and the New England Journal of Medicine's report is repeated again, then we're in for big trouble. Yasmin, talking about vaccinations, one country that's done very well on vaccinations is Israel, but they've now reimposed re- restrictions after just four weeks. Uh, Natalie Bennett, the new prime minister, says the vaccine is not sufficient to fight against the Delta variant. As someone who's got a, you know, you're, you're based in the UK, but you've got a foot in the US as well. Can you see Britain backpedalling as well on the restrictions? I mean, certainly. I mean, as you just mentioned, you only really need to look elsewhere to see that this is happening in other places. Um, You know, as you mentioned, Israel, I think it didn't take them very long at all to reinstate their indoor mask mandate after um, lifting all their restrictions. And even my native California, I think about a month after the state lifted its COVID restrictions, um, Los Angeles County announced that they too were going to be reimposing their mask mandate. Um, And they framed it, you know, not as something that was a punishment or a reversal, but as a means of prevention. You know, we know that masks help prevent people spreading this virus. And if, you know, and if variants are a concern, then this is just a really like easy way to do that. The fact that all of these reversals were kind of happening while I presume the British government was sort of determining whether they were going to, you know, whether lifting restrictions was also going to include a mask mandate kind of led me to think, oh, well, maybe, you know, they'll, they'll look further afield and sort of see the other examples and maybe learn from other places' mistakes. But maybe this is just a lesson that uh, Britain is going to need to, to learn on its own. I mean, I, I certainly myself wouldn't be surprised if I saw to, to see Britain backpedal on this. I mean, to an extent, we are already seeing 
some instances where, you know, masks are remaining. So, you know, Transport for London has announced that they're going to keep mandating masks um, on on tube trains, for example. Um, How impactful that's going to be, I'm not so sure, given how many people don't appear to wear them um, while they are mandated. Um, But, you know, we've also seen grocery stores, for example, announce that they're going to advise that people continue to wear them. So, you know, it's it I I wouldn't be surprised. I guess I'll put it that way. Yeah, I mean, the government has been softening their language. Initially, July the 19th was supposed to be irreversible. Now they're talking about restrictions possibly being reintroduced if if, if levels become unacceptable. I, I, I suppose my fear is that having placed the decision supposedly in the hands of the common sense public, you immediately place it in the context of people deciding that they're going to have a huge row in Sainsbury's because it's their right not to wear a mask if they don't want to. And the, uh, you know, the supermarket may have its own rule, but that person who's decided they don't want to wear a mask could quite reasonably point to the fact that uh, the government guidance has been withdrawn. And it doesn't obviate the supermarket's right to make their own rules, but it makes it harder for them to argue for it when they don't have the government's backing. Oh, totally. I mean, it puts them in a very uncomfortable position. And look, I can feel for, you know, the Sainsbury security guard or or the TFL staffer who doesn't you who may not feel like it's their job to have to go to every passenger or or customer and tell them that, you know, they please like, you know, pull up your mask or wear it properly or, or wear one um, yeah. if you're not exempt. Um, because, yeah, it just puts them, you know, it's a confrontational situation. It really is, you know, the government effectively just just putting the responsibility to people. Um, but, but more than anything, I think that the problem with making promises like irreversible is that at the end of the day, you know, if you end up reversing, which as we've seen time and again throughout this pandemic, I mean, U-turns are, are the government's specialty, um, you're going to end up looking shambolic even to people who may agree with your decision. I mean, think back to Christmas time. Um, you know, I, I'm sure, I mean, I was among them. I understood why the government decided at the last minute to say, actually, maybe we shouldn't be gathering indoors for Christmas this year. But it just disappointed a lot of people because up until that point, they were saying, oh, no, it's going ahead. And I fear that we're going to kind of end up with some level of disappointment here as well. I really do think the big X factor that's being missed is the large number of people who really like a confrontation with a member of staff. For a lot of people, that's a, that's a great afternoon out. Roy, just to, uh, to 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 bring us to the end of this this section, I mean, we are we've just embarked on a grand experiment. Nobody knows how it's going it's going to shake out. If you were in the position of having a hotline uh, straight to Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson, I mean, we know where they are. They're in isolation. What would you be saying to them right now? Uh, well, I mean, well, I would like to have had the conversation before we got where we are, but we are where we are. I mean, clearly, the 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 ping thing has got to be sorted out. Uh, but as I say, that's going to open the floodgates for a lot of other people. So they've got to be very clear what they're going to do about attenuating the impact of pinging, certainly on the NHS, perhaps on some other public services. But they need to be clear about what it is. We need to be clear about what the plan is to try and resolve the waiting list issue at the moment. <laughs> We're just saying, you know, we're going to throw a lot of money at it and get very busy. Well, and that's no, that's no good either. And the, the the there are two other big things. One is workforce. We've got a huge gap in the workforce in the NHS. We came into it with uh, with big uh, workforce problems, and we're we're in it with big workforce problems. And the other big thing, of course, which is a conversation for another day, is what are we going to do about social care? Because unless we can fix social care, we can't fix a huge 
huge number of people that pitch up at A&E, elderly, frail, and they take a lot of long time to look after and you have to you know, be very sensitive about how you do it. So those are the things I would do. But you look, I'm not hopeful, is it? I mean, it's shambolic. There's, there's, there's no other way to describe it. We've got a prime minister who looks shambolic. He takes shambolic decisions uh, and we've got a shambolic government. It's just, I mean, it's the worst. I've been around politics and healthcare for a long time and it's the worst I think I've ever seen it. Roy Lilly, we love having you on the podcast. We just wish we didn't have to keep asking you back. <laughs> but if events make it necessary, and I fear we'll have you back again soon before the end of the year. Well, let's hope I'm back to eat a load of humble pie and it's all gone very well. Well, let's hope so. I'll bake it. Yeah, I'll eat it. Roy Lilly, thanks for joining us. The biggest anti-government protests in decades are shaking Cuba. In one of the last outposts of communism, protesters angry at shortages of food, medicine and electricity are also demanding an end to the dictatorship that's ruled the country for nearly six decades. The Cuban government blames US sanctions for the shortages, but a weak state-run economy has been punished by the collapse of tourism because of COVID. Arthur, these are massive protests, biggest seen in Cuba for a very long time. We're told that the people are angry because of basic shortages. What's, what is going on? What is really going on here? Well... There's a lot of things happening at once. COVID is definitely a big issue. Uh, At the moment, Cuba's got the highest COVID rates in all of Latin America. And of course, ordinarily, Cuba is renowned for having a very effective health service. And so one of the things that an ordinary Cuban thinks about their life is things might not be perfect, but at least I have good health care. Well, when that bargain breaks down, Clearly, a lot of people become angry. angry. But there are other things in there as well. There is no longer a member of the Castro family running the country. The, the current Cuban leader, Diaz-Canel, is an is a incredibly underwhelming figure. He's a sort of very bland bureaucrat. He's not an inspirational revolutionary hero of any kind. So I think he, he would have a, ch- a challenge in, in any crisis, and this is a particularly difficult crisis. And then the final thing I think is that, you know, social media, the internet, these things have seeped into Cuba. So Cubans can communicate, they can organise, they can they can act in a revolutionary fashion in a way that probably wasn't possible for them 10, 20 years ago. Is it possible to say how Cuba managed to kind of remain immune to the collapse of communism at the end of the 80s and also to the kind of authoritarianism that we saw in China afterwards, where you know a, a communist state was able to sort of stay intact be, by being very tactical? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, there's a long story there. I mean, part of it, again, comes back to some of those factors that are now absent. So you did have the Castros. I think they genuinely commanded the admiration and respect of a lot of Cubans, obviously not all Cubans. Um, But the other thing, you know, economically, there are two huge economic sort of crunches that have hit Cuba. So one is that Cuba was completely uh, dependent on Venezuela to supply it with, with cheap oil, uh, to sort of keep the lights on and, and keep the economy humming. Uh, and the Venezuelan economy itself is in total collapse. So that extremely important sort of economic lifeline has has stopped working for them. But the other really important economic lifeline is tourism. Well, nobody's going on holiday, or certainly not the kind of holiday that takes you to Cuba. So, it, you know, they're, they're going through an economic nightmare at the moment. So some of the things that kept the country sort of rumbling along at an acceptable level, have fallen away in just in the last year or so. Yasmin, uh, Joe Biden's issued a statement in support of the protesters, but he hasn't 
sort of suggested the political and economic opening of, of Cuba that the Obama administration was sort of it had in train. He's kept lot, most of Trump's reimposed sanctions in place. Why is this? Why does Cuba loom so large in American politics? I don't know that it does. To, to the, and, and I think that partly might explain why Biden hasn't answered this question kind of more forcefully. I, I think, you know, for, for this administration, he probably assumed that that promise he made during the 2020 campaign, that he would reverse the sanctions that Trump had imposed after Obama had reached that historic deal to open relations with Cuba. I don't think that he thought he probably had to deal with that for some time. But, um, but you know, as we saw with Israel and Palestine earlier this year, sometimes foreign policy kind of just pushes itself onto your to-do list. And, and then this administration finds itself having to deal with a problem that it probably thought it had more time to address. Um, but, but I do think that the reverse is true. I, I do think that the U.S. looms quite large over these Cuban protests. And, and I think you, you both hinted at this a little bit, you know, that the Cuban government um, has blamed a lot of its woes on the United States and the U.S. embargo. Um, I believe the Cuban president claimed that, you know, U.S.-backed mercenaries were what was causing the unrest in the country. But, you know, as I understand it, um, and, and as, you know, experts on, on this issue have said, of which I must profess I am not, um, it's that, you know, what we're seeing in Cuba, and I think Arthur alluded to this really well, um, or kind of outlined some of these issues that the country is facing, is that, you know, U.S. sanctions alone, I do not think even removing those would fix the, the crisis that, that Cuba is facing right now. As Arthur mentioned, you know, tourism is decimated by the pandemic. You know, the, the country is, is dealing from a mismanaged economic system. Um, you know, now suddenly basics like food and medicine are just because of inflation, just too expensive. There are frequent blackouts. Even if the U.S. were to undo the sanctions that Trump had reimposed, I don't necessarily know that those problems would go away. There's, li- there's little doubt that, that the Biden administration would want Cuba to change and, and become democratic. It's been a long term American goal. But I mean, do you think he necessarily wants it to happen right now? Yeah, I mean, I do think that the Biden administration would would like to see change, um, whether or not he was expecting it now. Uh, I, I don't know. But but yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right in that there is a very difficult political balance here. I mean, on the one hand, you do have lawmakers in the U.S. who believe that, yes, absolutely, the U.S., should be lifting these sanctions, which, you know, do cause all, all sorts of problems. I mean, you know, not only does it restrict U.S. citizens from traveling to Cuba, but it also limits the amount of money that Cuban Americans can send to their relatives on the island. Some lawmakers in, in the U.S. believe that the Biden administration should not only rescind the sanctions, but also offer further humanitarian assistance. And that by doing so, they would not only be kind of creating a meaningful difference between Trump policy and Biden policy on this issue, but they would also crucially, I think, make it more difficult for the Cuban government to sort of scapegoat the U.S. as the source of its problems. But the other side of that political argument is that lifting sanctions now would make it seem as though the Biden administration has, is somehow giving in to the Cuban regime, as it were. And, and some, some Republican lawmakers in particular think that, you know, the fact that protests are happening in Cuba at the moment is proof that, you know, Trump's policies vis-a-vis the country work because they're creating this necessary pressure. I don't necessarily know if that's if that's right, but but I do think there is this very difficult political calculus that Biden is going to have to address probably much sooner than he would have wanted to. Gavin, the British left has long had a romantic attachment to Cuba, all the Che t-shirts, all the Fidel posters. We've seen several Labour left MPs, including Zara Sultana, Richard Bergen and Ian Lavery, tweeting 
fulsome support for the Cuban government. Why is this? I mean, is, is it is it again? Is it a good look when people are rising up against authoritarian authoritarian regimes for Labour members of Parliament to be effectively supporting that regime? Well, I think part of it is they're stuck in a romantic past. You know, it is Che Guevara and uh, uh, and you know the grandma, the boat that, that arrived, and the the revolutionaries. And I think. I spent a lot of time in Cuba in the 1990s, and they went through similar problems to the problems they're getting today. There were empty shelves. People were very discontented. I talked to quite a few people who were essentially, they thought the system was rubbish, and they weren't very fond of, uh, of, of the Communist Party. However, they were very fond of the Castros. And uh, one of them, I remember, this is years ago, but saying to me, along the lines of, you know, when you've got first-generation revolutionaries, there is something that is important in our history and you have to stand by them. And I wondered if that's, I don't know if there's a rule about this, but it's true of Mugabe in Zimbabwe. People stood by him despite he was despotic and uh, corrupt in the end. Uh, and as we've seen in South Africa, you know, beyond Mandela, some of the first generation revolutionaries were, shall we say, not less than perfect. So maybe that was part of it. The other thing that was said, and this was again a hearsay from, from, from people who weren't very fond of the regime, is the most subversive thing that ever happened to us was when Jimmy Carter, so it must have been, you know, uh, way, way back in, in, in history, let in some of the um, Cuban Americans who'd gone to Florida and they came over here and they showed us pictures of their houses and their cars and their refrigerators, things that we don't have. So I'm not quite sure what Biden should do, but it is very subversive when people who have kinship see that the people who ended up in Florida are doing a lot better than them, and they probably aren't. Now, who says the economy isn't roaring back? It's good news for plucky job seeker George Osborne, who's just been nearly unanimously appointed as the new chairman of the British Museum. The former Nine Jobs George is now down to a mere six, we think, if we're counting correctly, after leaving the editorship of the Evening Standard and his £650,000 one-day-a-week gig at BlackRock. And so another well-connected Conservative gets to influence the cultural life of the nation. Is this a good idea? Especially when the British Museum's contentious sponsorship deal with BP will soon be decided by George Osborne, whose other employer, investment bank Roby Warshaw, advises BP. We spoke to someone with thoughts on the matter. My name's Chris Garrard. I'm co-director of the Campaigns and Research Organisation Culture Unstained, and we work to bring about the end of fossil fuel funding of museums and cultural organisations, and also to just try and promote a more ethical approach to funding arts and culture generally. George Osborne, the former Chancellor, was recently elected as the new chairman of the British Museum. There's a range of factors why George Osborne is an entirely unsuitable choice to be the chairman. He is part of an investment bank, Roby Warshaw, which recently advised BP on the acquisition of shale oil and gas in the US. This was a $10.5 billion deal. So there is this kind of direct connection to BP. As Chancellor, he kind of created this policy which gave tax breaks to the fossil fuel industry. And so as a consequence of that, BP actually gained about £675 million from the UK taxpayer between 2015 and 2019 as a consequence of a policy that he brought about. The other issues that are confronting the British Museum right now are about its colonial legacies, the issues of restitution and 
He's just not someone with the qualification to meaningfully engage with those issues. The culture war, as it's referred to, is something which has been kind of invented or or concocted by government. Actually, the, the kind of issues that are being raised within museums, whether it's about statues or the word decolonization, these are just fundamental things of museums practice. So there are people within the British Museum who work there, the curators, who've been engaging with ideas of decolonization for a long time. And all of the kind of complex and rich and meaningful ways that this can be explored. So it's the beginning of a process. And it's it's the very least that we can be doing in response to the kind of colonial legacies and histories that exist. At the British Museum, these questions aren't going to go away. So right now we're seeing huge floods in Germany and Belgium, and we're seeing wildfires in the US. For us, the particular issue of fossil fuel sponsorship and the way this is used to try and improve the image of the fossil fuel industry, that's not going anywhere. In terms of the wider landscape of the museum sector as well, I think it's it's just going to expose and show in relief the kind of entrenched ideas which need to fall by the wayside. The idea that a millionaire white male former politician is the ideal person to lead a museum that has all of these very live and very relevant questions confronting it about colonialism, race and representation. People are going to become impatient that we're going to demand museums that kind of challenge us, that are genuinely open, discursive spaces. And people are going to demand like changes in leadership. They're going to want to bring forward these different kinds of exhibitions that people are championing, different ways of thinking about museums and the role they play in society as well. And so what lies on the other side of this is actually something really exciting and really positive, but it has to be fought for. Gavin, any thoughts on that one? Well, it's obviously a controversial appointment, but I, I think actually it would be wonderful for the heritage of our country, if the country manages to stay uh, together long enough, for the British Museum to have all members of all Conservative cabinets since 2010, given that's 11 years ago, put in the British Museum, stuffed and mounted, and with a list of their achievements around them, I mean, including, you know, austerity, underfunding the NHS, centralising central government, uh, screwing up coronavirus. I could go on and on and on. But the, but it would be very good to have a sort of something so that we can remember them by. That's not a museum, that's an escape room. <laughs> it could happen. You never know. They might all be in there uh, for a long time. Finally, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's the free speech enforcer. Last week, the government quietly passed a new bill regarding free speech at universities. The Higher Education, open brackets, freedom of speech, close brackets bill came under sustained attack from Labour, which claimed that the legislation amounted to nothing more than legal protection for hate speech. The government, on the other hand, has declared the bill necessary to tackle what they called a growing intolerance at universities. Gavin, you're the Chancellor of a university, the University of Kent, so you've got a bit of skin in the game here. Does growing intolerance actually exist on university campuses in your experience? I haven't seen it. Hand on heart, I haven't seen it. We haven't had any. Uh, there have been some universities that have done stupid things. They've invited people like uh, like a- a- Amber Rudd, a conservative uh, minister, to speak and then turned her down at the last minute in a way which was really rude. And I'd be delighted if she came and speak, 
speaks to the University of Kent, as would our students, I have to say, because I talk to them quite a lot. This, is, it's, this seems to me to be a government which can't solve problems that do exist, creating a bill to try to solve a problem which doesn't in reality exist for most of us. We have, I can't think of this as being something that we've had to discuss seriously, except when somebody raises it in Parliament. I mean, we have laws against defamation. We have laws against hate speech. For me, this is a dead cat story. And if they want to you know, improve freedom of speech, they could maybe get, get to Harry back on GB News having taken the knee and been booted off. So I'm not saying there are no problems in universities, but we have not encountered it. It's not something the Vice-Chancellor and I have had to discuss. Well, the government's own Office of Students made a, a, a survey of this and found that there were 62,000 uh, invitations by students for external events in 2017 to 2018. Only 53 were rejected by the Student Union. So this is, what, well, less than 1%. Um, it, it does seem to be much uh, in the kind of voter registration manner or the uh, you know voter, voter suppression legislation that we've become familiar with. Not, not, a, not a real problem. I mean, the, this free speech enforcer, en, enforcer position with powers to fine universities... What is the purpose of this beyond creating news stories? Well, I mean, uh, who, who would get this job? Is it going to be Dida Harding? Is it going to be? I, I have no idea. It's going to be Toby Young, isn't it? It's going to be. It is going to be Toby Young. You know, the He's one going to be thing bitten by a radioactive Magna Carta. It is astonishing to me that we have a debate about people who are being cancelled, who are able to write about it in their weekly columns in The Spectator and elsewhere. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if this is a problem for Toby Young, if he would like to come and talk to people who would like to go and listen to him, well, that's up to him. I mean, I just don't, I just don't see it as a problem. I've interviewed Toby Young and I found him somebody who... Uh, let's let's put it this way. It was probably a seven or eight minute interview and I got a bit bored about two minutes in. So he's welcome to bore on if he wants, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't really work with me. Yeah, I mean, this, this all played out in the US long before it happened here. You know, cancel culture is almost now, you know, a mainstay of uh, American news stroke comment. And progressives like us tend to wince at the very term, you know, as if it kind of validates the idea of those persecuted free thinkers out there. Is there any way to kind of break this cycle? where, you know, conservatives say something provocative or, or outrageous, or perhaps, you know, gender critical right to say something that deviates from the orthodoxy, and it's instant cancellation instead of a kind of a debate and a reason take now. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting, because, you know, when I think about the, it feels like we kind of almost move from scandal to scandal in a way. Like, if you ask me who got cancelled last year, I don't actually know if I'd be able to tell you. I feel like there's just been um, but, you know, I, I don't even know if it's so much when conservatives or people who we expect to have views with which some people might disagree, that they're the ones that ultimately get canceled. Because you kind of expect that they would share views different to yours. I, I think a lot of the uproar comes when it's, you know, people who are widely, like, well-regarded or, or people who are kind of, quote-unquote, part of, like, the, you know, progressive sort of, you know, when they kind of step out of line. I feel like that's when the sort of uproar takes place. But but yeah, I mean, to your question, though, I don't, I don't know how we get out of it, because I've never been on the canceled side of things. You know, there's still time. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, it, from my vantage point, having watched people, in some cases, people I've met kind of be faced with this uproar. Um, I, I don't really know what what that feels like. And, and it, it almost kind of, you know, it's not like they cease to exist. It, it's not like these people just kind of quietly go away. Um, you think back to like Alison Roman, for example, the New York Times writer who who had given an interview where, where she said some some quite you know pretty, pretty distasteful things about Chrissy Teigen and and, and others um, and Marie Kondo, I think. I mean, this was sort of a niche thing that I think kind of gripped Twitter for a while. 
where this New York Times writer kind of just got booted and, and quote unquote canceled. I mean, she's still there. She's still doing work. She granted she's not doing it for the New York Times, but she still kind of exists. And I mean, w- would it probably be more productive to sort of find a way of doing it that doesn't involve a full scale expulsion? I mean, sure. I mean, I would it would it have led to the sort of you know what I thought was was quite a meaningful and good apology. I don't potentially. I don't see why it wouldn't have. But yeah, I, I don't know how we get out of this sort of you know it, it it kind of feels like it's just sort of the it's just sort of a thing that comes with being online and and obviously having you know either saying things publicly and having a sort of platform or worse yet having publicly said things in the past that people can kind of pull up and and relitigate. And we're back to getting a Nokia 3310 and just playing Snake. Arthur, what is it about universities that the government is so desperate to get its teeth into? Is it because they're full of clever people and experts? Well, that that might be part of it, but I, I imagine it's more about how you can portray them. So for the, the government's new kind of core demographic, people who may themselves not be university educated who may be persuadable that universities are full of kind of layabouts who, you know, spend all their time sort of smoking dope and, and spouting off about liberalism. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it seems to me it's an easy kind of straw man target for the government, which is, you know, is fixated on creating these culture wars because they don't actually have any plans for making the country better. And universities tick so many boxes, don't they? Maybe we should supply, uh, apply, one of us should apply to be free speech enforcer. That'd be quite good there, even-handed. I, I quite fancy it. Does it come with a uniform? Do you get a badge? I don't know. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker. And as usual, it's time for escape routes. What are the TV, films, books, music, and whatever else that are taking our panellists' minds away from the boiling hell that is politics? Arthur. What's your escape route? So I've actually, this is going to sound a bit grim, but it's grimly fascinating. I've been reading a biography of Adolf Eichmann, um, by, who was, you know, the architect of the uh, final solution and, and the, the, the Holocaust and, and uh, you know, arguably the sort of worst of the worst Nazis. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of grimly fascinating because he famously was then uh, captured by Mossad in Argentina and taken back to Israel, where he was put on trial. And there's a famous account of that trial by Hannah Arendt. But what there is in not in that book, which is in this biography by David Cesarini, is an account of his entire life and just the weird kind of mundanity and kind of of sort of mediocrity of this person who rose up through the ranks of of the Nazi system. Uh, to become one of the greatest monsters in human history. It's, as I say, it, it's sort of grimly fascinating. What's it entitled? It is called Eichmann. Mm. The clues in the name. Clues in the name, yes. So, Yasmin, uh, Arthur's going for light summer reading about one of the greatest monsters in history. How are you taking your mind off how depressing politics is at the moment? I don't know what the rules are around recommending other podcasts, but I've been <laughs> just finishing <laughs> um, the Day X series by the New York Times's. Berlin bureau chief, Katrin Benhold, which takes a deep dive into far-right extremism within the German military. Um, and it is both quite scary, uh, but also absolutely fascinating. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, a, a year's worth or more, I think, of, of just really incredible reporting. So it's, a, it's a, I think, a four or five part series. Um, so it's pretty quick to get through, but I finally finished that. 
I'm beginning to think people misunderstand the idea of this bit. It's supposed to be things that make you not think about politics, oh, right. not take you to do. See, <laughs> well, that, it does, that I keep forgetting every time, every time I always think it's like, I just, I think the answer there, Andrew, is that I just don't not think about politics. Uh, <laughs> you have you have my sympathies. Gavin Esler, how about you? Tell me you're watching Love Island. Uh, no, I'm not watching Love Island, actually. I, sadly, I've never never seen Love Island, although I, I have got a claim to fame, which is I just recorded a part of the series of Celebrity Masterchef, and on it was somebody from Love Island. So oh. there you are. Uh, yeah, I, and what I do, I suppose, to escape from politics, although it is connected in a way, is I'm reading uh, Untraceable, which is a Russian novel by Sergei Lebedev, uh, which is translated into English. It's a very fine book, and it's about uh poisoning in the in russia or poisoning people you don't like it's so good we've actually already had him on the bunker daily uh, ah. a while ago yes i'm witnessing my country returning to its past he said and i wouldn't want to be a person who does nothing about it so yeah you can find that in uh, in our back catalogue the bunker daily back in the ussr author sergey lebedev on russia's unquiet past there you go we cover the cultural waterfront <laughs> well my Escape route is staggeringly trivial compared to you guys, but I've been spending uh, lockdown hammering eBay to fill in my my back catalogue of the Blood and Fire record label, which is amazing reggae curated by, amongst other people, Mick Hucknall from Simply Red and his mate Steve Barron. This is a fantastic label that existed in the 90s and early 2000s, and their mission was to ensure that all the unpaid guys from the golden age of reggae finally got paid, or at least their estates did, because most of them are dead. And I picked up this album last week on eBay by Jackie Mitu, the fantastic keyboard player. It's called Champion in the Arena, 1976 to 1977. And it's just a compilation of the most incredible 1976-77 reggae music. Absolutely perfect for the way the world seems to be melting right now. Jackie Mitu was a keyboard player of stunning vision. He seems to think, for some reason, that he actually wrote Norwegian Wood by the Beatles because he keeps going into Norwegian Wood, whatever he's playing. The guy has got fantastic history. He basically wrote Armageddon Time, which you may know from The Clash. Uh, he appears on UB40's Labour of Love album, playing on Many Rivers to Cross. And poor old Jackie Mateen died in 1990. He was only 42. But I picked this up and I played it four times in a row. It was so good. So my suggestion to you is if you find a copy of Champion in the Arena by Jackie Mateen lying around anywhere, pick it up. It will change your life. So there you go. So that's the end of this week's bunker. Thank you, Arthur Snell. Thank you. Thank you, Yasmin Sarhan. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Gavin Esler. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You'll get the podcast early. You'll get our splendid merchandise. And most importantly, you'll be helping to support us in what we like to think is our valuable work. Bunker backers get an honorary salute on the show, and here are some now. It's a big thanks from me to Kathy Jacob, Ian Wilkinson, and Ben Butler Cole. Best wishes from me to Caitlin Greenwood, Anne Hewitt Copley, and Andrew McLaughlin. Many thanks from me to Lauren Bailey, Jim Lee, and Andy Ellis. And finally, best wishes from me to Dorothy Malloy, Alex, and the mysterious HB. Could be absolutely anybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Gavin Esler, Yasmin Saran, and Arthur Snell. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. I'm recording this under a duvet and it's very hot. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>